Welcome to the Global Hemophilia Report, a podcast led by science, curiosity, and storytelling. Produced by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and supported through advertisements by Sanofi Genzyme. I'm Patrick James Lynch, your host and resident hemophilia patient, and this is episode one of the Global Hemophilia Report. Today's topic, inhibitors. Picture this, you're 12 years old. It's a Tuesday and you should be in school, but instead you're sitting in a room at your local hemophilia treatment center, hoping to get a handle on the most recent ankle bleed. You and your mom have been here for a couple of hours already, first checking in and getting the vitals down, then updating the nurse, then discussing the issues at school with the social worker, then learning that your range of motion in your target joint is down another five degrees from last year as your physical therapist narrates her work for the fellow who is training under her. Then they leave and pretty soon the hematologist is going to come in and summarize what you already know. Your inhibitor continues to cause havoc on your body, is not responding to the new regimen and is causing serious damage and disruption to your life. This hypothetical scenario is not actually hypothetical at all. It's the kind of clinic day that I personally experienced numerous times in my several years battle with inhibitors. Now, fortunately for me, immune tolerance induction, which we'll get into later in the show, was a success, and my life was forever after changed, and very much so for the better. But what actually are inhibitors? Why are they so difficult to manage? And what research is currently taking place to better understand them? That's what we're here to discuss on episode one of The Global Hemophilia Report. We'll dive in right after this quick break. Sanofi is committed to bringing new perspectives and bold innovations to the global hemophilia community. Learn more about how Sanofi is breaking barriers and supporting the community at sanofihemophilia.com. Welcome back. For the last 20 years, inhibitor development was considered the most significant severe hemophilia-related complication. Inhibitors are antibodies that the immune system can develop because it views the infused clotting factor as an unrecognizable foreign substance that needs to be destroyed, rendering the infused therapy ineffective. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, and several other international epidemiological studies, very problematic or high titer inhibitors develop in approximately one in five people with severe hemophilia A, up to 15 in 100 people with non-severe hemophilia A, and in about five in 100 people with severe hemophilia B. This episode focuses on inhibitors to hemophilia A, though most of what is shared from the patient and caregiver experience about the personal impact of inhibitors is applicable to individuals with inhibitors to factor IX as well. Scientifically, we'll focus on factor IX deficiency in a future episode. The significant deviation inhibitors were causing from an overall accelerating high quality health and life for this population spurred a massive prioritized effort in inhibitor research that sought to characterize its epidemiology, ascertain host and treatment-related factors for antibody development, understand the immunology of anti-factor 8 response, 
and optimize both the treatment of inhibitor-related bleeding and inhibitor eradication through immune tolerance. However, in the past three years, the licensure and rapid clinical adoption of the novel therapy emicizumab has revolutionized the therapeutic landscape and dramatically changed the lives of individuals with severe hemophilia A and inhibitors through highly effective bleeding prophylaxis, extreme ease of administration, and an enduring high safety profile. So this raises two important questions of both national and global significance that we must now consider. One, is the development of inhibitors still the most significant complication of severe hemophilia A? And two, is the investigation of inhibitors still a priority? And if it is, what are the critical questions demanding the attention of the researchers and funders within the hemophilia community? This episode features contributions and citations from investigators, clinicians, and research funders dedicated to this topic, as well as from patients and caregivers who can speak to their lived experience of inhibitors. The issue with inhibitors is they make what the patient needs not effective. My name is Dr. Glavy Batsuli, and I am a pediatric hematologist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. I'm also assistant professor of pediatrics with Emory University. During my residency and fellowship, I noticed a difference in quality of life and frequency of bleeds in the children that had inhibitors versus those who could treat with factor eight. I was diagnosed at a little before age one with hemophilia, and then I developed the inhibitor um, about 18 months um, after. My name's Kevin Finkel. I have severe hemophilia A with an inhibitor. Well, I've had an inhibitor my, uh, pretty much my whole life. So hemophilia for me was hemophilia with an inhibitor. With inhibitors, any factor that's infused into the patient's body, it attacks it and gets rid of it. So the factor can't do what it's supposed to do. When they went to camp, um, hemophilia camp, they had to infuse way more than any other kid at camp. My name is Ashley. I have two boys who are 14 and 15 with an inhibitor. So that would kind of just became obvious to them naturally that their hemophilia um, was not the same as everybody else's hemophilia. And that leads to bleeding issues, and you have to use other factors which aren't as good as the, the factor that they're missing, and that can cause all kinds of problems. My youngest, he used a wheelchair from the time he was three. He has some PTSD from being in the hospital so much when he was younger. He has a port that he's also had issues with. I think he's on his sixth or seventh port. Growing up, I had many bleeds going through school, and there would be a lot of periods of downtime where I was recovering from bleeds. When you have an inhibitor, you have increased risk of bleeding. And if you're bleeding more, you're not being able to go to school as much and focus. Um, you're more likely to stay in the house as opposed to be a normal active kid. So it has a lot of potential implications on their quality of life and their ability to treat a bleed effectively. And so I think that's, that's a big reason of kind of why we are studying why inhibitors develop and how to get rid of them so that kids don't have to deal with the potential medical and social impact that the inhibitors cause. Missed school, missed activities, living in pain. The consequences of an inhibitor are clear, as is the need to learn more. The reason I got attracted to inhibitors, specifically in hemophilia patients, is that I am a pediatrician. 
I love babies. I am uh, Shannon Carpenter. I am a pediatric hematologist and I'm the HTC director for the Children's Mercy Kansas City Hemophilia Treatment Center. Since I started training, I found this attraction to coagulation and think it's really cool. I think it's like sci-fi nerdy cool, how clots form and how clots dissolve and what prevents clots and what causes clots. And inhibitors are really the biggest problem that faces our, our children with hemophilia, severe hemophilia in particular. How do we get rid of inhibitors? Better yet, how do we prevent them from developing in the first place? So I think one of the things that's really cool about coagulation um, is that there's, it seems the more we dig, the more we find. We hear more from Dr. Carpenter and our other contributors right after this quick break. Globally, approximately 75% of people living with hemophilia have limited or no access to treatment. Sanofi is committed to helping address this public health crisis. In 2020, Sanofi, together with Sobi, extended their support for the WFH Humanitarian Aid Program, fulfilling their 2014 pledge to donate up to 1 billion IUs of Factor for humanitarian use over a 10-year period. This is the single largest donation of hemophilia factor therapy and has already provided treatment for more than 17,300 people in 43 countries, an important first step to providing a sustainable supply of therapy to those in need. To learn more about Sanofi's global commitment to the hemophilia community, visit SanofiHemophilia.com. Welcome back. In 1943, a British board game designer named Anthony E. Pratt created Cluedo, a game in which a murder takes place and it's up to the three to six players participating to use the information as it becomes available in order to deduce which game character committed the murder, where, and with which weapon. The game was later licensed to Parker Brothers and distributed in the United States where it was renamed Clue. It's the game we have to thank for sentences like, it was Colonel Mustard with a rope in the library, or it was Mrs. Peacock with a lead pipe in the ballroom. Clue was one of many board games my brother, grandmother, and I would play when uncontrolled bleeding kept me off my feet, out of school, and on the couch. Living with hemophilia and inhibitors can lead to a lot of time on the couch, away from everything else, feeling isolated, feeling pain. So how do we prevent inhibitors from developing? And how do we successfully eradicate those that do develop? One of the studies that's seeking to answer questions like these is the American Thrombosis and Hemostasis Network 8 study, better known simply as Athen 8, which is co-led by a Dr. Courtney Thornburg alongside Dr. Shannon Carpenter. So that athanase study is really great. I think it's going to raise some more questions than it answers, which is actually good in some ways. We're following about 250 kids out to see when we get to their inhibitor. We actually just closed enrollment at the end of this past um, calendar year. So uh, a little early to give you a lot of outcomes. But one thing we found is that we are seeing that when the inhibitors develop, they're developing early as we expected. But we do have gene information, on uh, mutational information on many of those patients. So we'll be able to compare some of that. We'll also be able to look at 
some of the treatment that they've gotten and treatment trends during that time period. So I think it'll be a really interesting findings once we have them, you know, kind of tied up in a bow. The idea that we could find what causes this major issue for patients with hemophilia, but then treat it well and help those patients, but also uh, perhaps prevent it, I think is a really attractive kind of scientific question. The, the holy grail is how do we prevent inhibitors from developing? Is there something that we could provide to, say, pregnant women or to babies when they're first born that could help prevent that? I'll address the prevention of inhibitors first, because that's simple. We don't know how to prevent inhibitors. Dr. Guy Young is a pediatric hematologist, researcher, and the director of the Hemophilia Treatment Center at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. Even in the SIPIT study, which used plasma-derived factor VIII, and even in some of the newer factor VIII products, where there may be a lower risk for inhibitors, that, that number is still 15%, 20%. We haven't developed any way of really preventing inhibitors or getting that number super low. So if we have a baby that's newly diagnosed with hemophilia, we can say, oh, we looked at A, B, C type of risk factor, but there's really nothing we can do to prevent an inhibitor from forming. But are there hints to predicting whether an inhibitor will occur that come from our genes, from our hemophilia genetic mutation? We know that there are specific genetic variants in the factor eight or factor nine gene that are more likely to end up having an inhibitor. Dr. Michael Recht, or Mike as he prefers, is a pediatric hematologist, the founding director of the Hemophilia Treatment Center at Phoenix Children's Hospital, and since 2019 has operated as the chief science officer for the American Thrombosis and Hemostasis Network, or ATHEN. There are some environmental risk factors, intense factor exposure at birth. We know that if you've got a large deletion, you're more likely to get an inhibitor, but it's still not 100%. I'm Dr. Shannon Meeks. I'm a pediatric hematologist uh, in Atlanta. And we know if you've got a low-risk mutation, like a missense mutation, that you're less likely with severe hemophilia to get an inhibitor, but it's not zero. That is something that we don't really have. Why is it it's not 100%? inhibitors in those patients with those high risk uh, mutations. Something may be protective in some of those patients in their immune system or maybe trigger it in another patient who does get an inhibitor in the way their immune system interacts with their uh, hemophilia. Inhibitors are more common in patients with a family member who has it. But there's really nothing that we've been able to grab onto that lets us say, we are going to pursue an intervention which is going to minimize our chance of of having an individual develop an inhibitor. So prevention is still aspirational. Our mission is to move research forward through Athen. Every year we're making incremental improvements in the quality of data we're getting, how we're monitoring the research data that's coming in, the diversity of the studies that we're doing, and most recently with the newest Athen natural history study, which we're calling Athen Transcends, we are harmonizing the way data is collected between different studies. So for example, the hemophilia natural history study and the severe von Willebrand natural history study 
were collecting almost exactly the same data, but it wasn't exactly the same. So you could never compare between the two. So what we did when we were developing Athen Transcends was just harmonize the questions across every single study that we're doing. So if we do a study in von Willebrand's or hemophilia or a platelet disorder or someone who's got bleeding that we can't explain, we can compare the um, results of the data that we get from each one of those different groups of participants in our studies. Prevention may still be aspirational, but as our contributors suggest, the research and lab work continues and we are starting to pile up the hints as to who may be showing early signs of inhibitor development. And those hints are beginning to grow into clues, clues that research can build upon. I think the the best data that we have right now as to predicting whether inhibitors will develop was from the HIPS study. And that followed 25 babies from the time of birth till either inhibitor development or 50 exposure days to factor. And the really powerful part about that study was there were biologic samples collected at very precise time points for the people on the study. And what we've demonstrated with that study is there seems to be a very specific immunoglobulin signature in people that end up having inhibitors, where a a subtype of the immunoglobulin called um, IgG shows up first, and then those people who have that specific subtype of IgG are much more likely to go on to develop inhibitors. So that's really our first clue as to who will ultimately develop an inhibitor who is exposed to factor. So if we have predictors of and can identify early signs of inhibitor development, but still cannot prevent them, can we at least eradicate them when they do occur? As far as eradication, however, we do have immune tolerance therapy, which is daily or at least every other day factor eight treatment to eventually tolerize the immune system, so to educate the immune system to not respond and make the antibodies against factor eight. Basically, with this type of therapy, you're giving overwhelming amounts of factor to kind of trick the immune system into thinking factor is okay. I did try immune tolerance and was on a regimen for that for a year. Did get my inhibitor tighter down to zero, but soon after I had a very bad knee bleed, and we think that spurred my immune system somehow. My tire level shot higher than it had ever been, close to 900. And at that point, there were lifetime caps on insurance. And so we decided to discontinue um, immune tolerance at that point. My oldest got diagnosed with an inhibitor maybe like a month after his port was placed. He was about 11 months old. My name is Michelle Johansson, and I have two sons with severe hemophilia A. And from there, we went through four years of what's called ITI and immune tolerance induction. We had four years of daily infusion for him through his Mediport. We had to replace the port at one point because we had used it so much that there really wasn't much left to it. Then we continued with the port, but we tried a different product. 
a plasma-derived product. And then we tried a long-acting product. And in the end, his inhibitor always came back. He had what they called many times a persistent inhibitor. And he failed, you know, the different qualifications of ITI like three different times. According to some research, the success rate of immune tolerance therapy has been demonstrated to range between 60 and 80% in patients with severe hemophilia A. So while effective for some, ITI as the only option for inhibitor eradication is clearly not enough. I had a second go at immune tolerance in 2014, and it was going okay. The titer level spiked and was coming down gradually like it is supposed to. And then I learned about the Heme Libra trial. In November of 2017, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved the use of emicizumab, a bispecific monoclonal antibody that performs the function of activated factor VIII in adults and children with hemophilia A who have factor VIII inhibitors. Commercially available as Hemlibra, and since approved for use in hemophilia A patients without inhibitors, Emicizumab's emergence gave patients like Kevin and caregivers like Michelle something new to think about. So at that point, I had to make a decision whether or not to continue with immune tolerance or to drop it and try the uh, Hemlibra trial. And so I decided to um, discontinue the immune tolerance again and get on the Hemlibra trial. I was the second person in the U.S. on the trial, on the Haver one. And it has been night and day difference since then. And so finally, we said, you know what? Okay, we weren't going to do Hemlibra. I think that's just what the universe is telling us at this point. Like, we've tried everything. We knew that factor eight was kind of, this is the gold standard, but the gold standard's not working for him. And he never presented, even to this day, knock on wood, he's never had a spontaneous bleed, even with a inhibitor. To be very honest, Emesuzumab for people with active inhibitors should be considered standard of care. We know that the annualized bleeding rate decreased by 85%, 90%, something like that. And in my clinical experience, it has changed the life of the, my patients who had inhibitors who we weren't able to tolerate. For patients with active inhibitors, it is the first drug that can provide real good prevention of bleeding. The issue with Hemlibra is in part that it doesn't really convert patients really to having normal blood clotting. It converts patients to a mild hemophilia phenotype. And for patients with inhibitors who, many of whom have target joints and significant joint damage, that correction may not be enough to really prevent all bleeds and prevent any further worsening of the joint damage that they may already have. I think what it hasn't changed is the opinion of we as treaters that inhibitors are still a bad thing. We don't know yet how the best way to treat someone with an inhibitor who's on emesuzumab who gets in a car crash or needs open heart surgery or needs joint replacement surgery. So there's still so many questions to ask. We still want to get rid of inhibitors if we can. Emicizumab's introduction has been very meaningful, but it has not solved inhibitors. 
and it's done nothing for patients with hemophilia B and inhibitors. To Dr. Mike's point, regardless of better therapeutics, we still want to eliminate inhibitors entirely, if we can. We hear more about the current research being done in the hopes of one day being able to get rid of inhibitors right after this quick break. Sanofi is breaking barriers for people with hemophilia through groundbreaking science so they can live beyond the limitations of their condition. Learn more about Sanofi's commitment at sanofihemophilia.com. Welcome back. So, if preventing inhibitors is not yet possible, and eradicating them with immune tolerance induction is only successful for some, then what research is currently taking place to help us fundamentally better understand inhibitors? More specifically, what information can we learn if we study the inhibitor antibodies themselves? One of the, the experiments that I've been looking at in the lab is we have been able to to characterize different types of anti-factor eight antibodies. And a lot of that work started with Dr. Meeks when she initially was starting out in the lab. Came to Atlanta to do my fellowship training and I ended up having the opportunity to go into a lab that actually looked at factor eight. And unexpectedly, I got this little itch of, wow, I can use some of this that's happening in the lab to really think about how inhibitors work with the factor and why we see different things in different patients. Dr. Pete Lawler, who's an internist with an interest in coagulation and structure function of factor eight, had a huge set of antibodies to factor eight that he had just made. So they're monoclonal antibodies. They're all different, but they're all purified out. And one of the challenges of patients is that they have a polyclonal response. Usually they have multiple antibodies to multiple different regions. And most of our clinical testing just looks at the final answer. You know, if you have eight apples and four pears and three oranges, what you get out is a total price of X, but unless you actually know what you're looking at, you have no idea what the breakdown was. So really what I started my career doing was taking each one of those individual antibodies, figuring out where on factor eight they hit or bound to, and then how that actually impacted the function of factor eight and the bleeding phenotype in our model, which is a mouse model of hemophilia. And when I came into the lab, I looked at antibodies to a specific part of the factor eight protein called the C1 domain. And through the lab, we have this huge repertoire of antibodies against the factor eight protein that we've been able to characterize and kind of figure out how they work. So one of the projects that I was working on is seeing, so now we have these different antibodies. If we go ahead and have them bind to the factor eight protein, let's see what it does to the immune system. And we did find a group of antibodies that actually made that response in terms of new factor eight antibody development more robust. And there were some antibodies that actually reduced that immune response to factor eight when you had the combination of the antibody and the factor eight together. Unfortunately, none of them were at a level where it was completely zero, but kind of the thought behind 
that experiment was to see if we can kind of modulate the immune system, if we can kind of alter that response in a little bit using those troublesome antibodies uh, to try to reduce that immune response that happens when you give factor eight. This work on characterizing different types of factor eight antibodies and analyzing the impact that the different types of antibodies have on factor function may help explain why some patients who technically clinically have the same diagnosis and would fit into the same cohort, can have significantly varying symptoms and lived experiences of hemophilia and inhibitors. It's hard to drill down in sometimes on individual patients. I have two patients, real patients, with inhibitor titers of 25. And one of them, I know for a fact from what we've done, has a fairly localized antibody epitope. So almost all of his antibodies look like they hit a very similar spot. He responds to high doses of factor eight nicely. The other one, I will say I've given more factor eight to than maybe anybody else. I mean, he doesn't respond at all. <laughs> and I can tell you that he's got antibodies that were scattered all along his molecule, his factor eight molecules. Yet there's both patients who have titers of 25, and if we were gonna look at them from a clinical study, we would count them as same cohort. And they're clearly very different patients. I once asked Dr. Glenn Pierce, a longtime researcher and biotech drug developer who holds both an MD and a PhD in immunology and who was born with severe hemophilia, I asked him to explain to me in the simplest terms why we were unable to prevent or eliminate inhibitors from the hemophilia community. His response was that the immune system is a, quote, complicated black box. With every piece of information that researchers like Dr. Meeks, Dr. Batsuli, and the many researchers like them from all across the globe gain from the study of inhibitors in the laboratory, we take yet another step closer to understanding just how that black box works. It's not unlike a great game of Clue, or Cluedo for the British purists out there, where little by little pieces of information come together so that, eventually, someone can declare it was Professor Plum with the dagger in the billiard room. But in order to reach that moment, when we finally understand enough about inhibitors to eliminate them from hemophilia once and for all, to realize what Dr. Young referred to as aspirational, the prevention of inhibitors, a pretty significant, if relatively simple, question comes to mind. Are researchers asking all of the right questions? Are we looking in all reasonable directions for answers? Or is part of the problem with inhibitors that we haven't been? One of the great things about working at the National Institutes of Health is that the exposure to science in so many different fields and domains brings up the possibilities of applying this research to the study of problems such as inhibitors in hemophilia A in a way that maybe hasn't been done before. Dr. Donna D. McKelly is the former deputy director of the Division of Blood Diseases and Resources within the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute at the National Institutes of Health. She is now retired from the NIH and working as a consultant in the hemophilia community work that includes serving as senior advisor on the Global Hemophilia Report. 
Several of the initiatives that I helped to spearhead while I was at the NIH really involved bringing individuals from multiple disciplines together to really understand factor eight as a stimulator of antibodies in the body. We call that immunogenicity. So to understand factor eight immunogenicity in ways that we hadn't understood it before and to explore it and in ways that we had never explored it before. By that we mean that for a long time, people in other fields have been understanding that predisposition to health and disease doesn't exactly begin after you're born. It is very intergenerational. The in utero environment has a lot to do with how we respond and trying to understand why certain individuals develop inhibitors has, although it's been focused on anything that happens to a baby and a child once they're born, has never really been explored from the perspective of what's going on uh, with mom, what's going on during the pregnancy, what's going on in utero. Now, back in 2018, the National Institute of Health NHLBI had a state of the science and that resulted in the NHLBI putting out a request for proposals to follow a cohort of women who are known carriers of hemophilia and then following their babies, particularly the babies who have hemophilia after they're born, and seeing what are the intrinsic risk factors for inhibitor development and the extrinsic risk factors for inhibitor development. We're hoping that by the spring of 2022, we will know who will be leading this effort. But it really will be the first time that we're gonna go from potential mom, who is a known carrier of hemophilia, through the baby, through development of inhibitor. And we're, we're gonna be collecting Think of any biospecimen that you can think of, and we're going to be collecting that. Placenta, blood cells, DNA, RNA, serum, plasma. So I think that this project is going to move us a long way down into figuring out not only what the risk factors are for inhibitor development, but starting to think about how we can prevent inhibitor development. This is going to be a massive undertaking. So this intergenerational study of a hemophilia carrier mother through pregnancy and through her hemophilia offspring will study the predisposition of inhibitors in a way that has never been studied before, adding information about genetics, the whole genome, and the influential environmental factors to the ongoing study of the developing immune system's response to factor eight. And that's going to hopefully allow us to take the understanding of immunogenicity even one step further. So I think the best way to think about the importance of cross-disciplinary research is in an age of informational explosion, okay, the explosion of knowledge, the explosion of scientific data that's emerging, and particularly the explosion of information in very narrow areas of research. One of the challenges is bringing together all of this information that may have relevance, bits of information that may have relevance to each other, but are kind of 
evolving in silos, how to break down those silos, and to fully understand the influence of how emerging knowledge in one field may have extreme relevance to another field and may cause or bring about some of the breakthroughs that we're seeing in other areas of science. And so to bring that about to the study of hemophilia, rare diseases, complications of rare diseases such as inhibitors where that may not happen organically and sometimes needs to have some sort of stimulus to bring it together. I think that's where we probably need to be going to get past some of the barriers to progress that we've been hitting. In other words, we're, we may not be looking for answers in all the right places, but expanding our horizons to understanding where those answers might lie may be the key to making the quantum leap in understanding that we've been searching for throughout many, many years of research in this area. So, are inhibitors still the most significant complication of severe hemophilia A? The answer appears to be yes. And while that quantum leap in understanding may not come today, tomorrow, or this year, as the contributors to this episode have made clear, there are dedicated investigators across the globe working on better understanding inhibitors, putting together the clues so that one day, one long-awaited day, we will be able to say it was a whole team of scientists from across the world in the laboratory pooling and applying knowledge that they gained through research in multiple fields, and now inhibitors are no more. One day. For a list of links to learn more about some of the most critical research into inhibitors happening right now, Take a look at the program notes for this episode in your podcast player or visit the episode's webpage on bloodstreammedia.com. Episode two of the Global Hemophilia Report goes live on Thursday, March 17th, and the topic is one that is of extreme relevance to our discussion here today on inhibitors and is in many ways a natural follow-up. Episode two covers novel and investigative therapies for hemophilia A and B, including gene therapy development. There is much to discuss and it's sure to be a great episode. So subscribe to the Global Hemophilia Report podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts to have that episode delivered directly to you the moment it goes live. And share this episode with friends or colleagues in the field. You'll also find Global Hemophilia Report's social media pages on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you to the contributors to this episode, Dr. Shannon Carpenter, Dr. Shannon Meeks, Dr. Glavy Batsuli, Dr. Mike Recht, Dr. Donna D. McKelly, Dr. Guy Young, along with patients and caregivers, Kevin, Michelle, Ashley, and Natalie. Thank you to our producer, Keith Corneluk, our editor, Jose Miguel Baez, our research assistant, Jessica Lauren Richmond, graphic designer, Christina Newhart, creative director, Joshua Sterling Bragg, and executive producers, Amy Board, Rob Bradford, and Ryan Geelan. Special thanks to our senior advisor, Dr. Donna D. McKelly, and to our featured advertiser, Sanofi Genzyme. My name is Patrick James Lynch, and you've been listening to the Global Hemophilia Report. Until next time.
Did you know that nearly 80% of bleeds in hemophilia occur in the joints? Joint bleeds are the most common type of bleed and can cause lasting damage as well as increase the risk of recurrent bleeds. Sanofi is committed to breaking barriers for patients, including providing resources and education to support joint health. Visit hemejointhealth.com to see how routine, objective assessment might benefit patients' joint health for the long term. Again, that's heme, as in H-E-M, jointhealth.com. This site is intended for U.S. healthcare professionals.